Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Today we're doing like um, a bit of an aerial flyover a few chapters in 2 Kings. We're looking at chapters 3 to 8, but we'll be focusing on like a, a few select moments through them. And so there will be a fair bit of Bible reading, so keep your Bibles handy and open and get excited. Uh, I don't know uh, how you, each of you have found it, but I've been loving 1 and 2 Kings so far. I think it's been a really great series um, to be able to um, be reading the Bible in, in big chunks at a time, and I've enjoyed reading it throughout the week, uh, and so I hope you guys have as well. Um, in the books of 1 and 2 Kings, the focus is, unsurprisingly, on the kings, right? We're following the different kings um, of Israel, and then um, as Israel divides in two, the kings of Israel and Judah, the two different kingdoms. Some kings are good, most kings are bad, uh, but none are perfect. And in light of the promise that God made to David, which was that a king from his line would one day sit on the throne forever, the Messiah, the Christ, all of these flawed human kings keep pointing us toward that future king because all of them fall short of being that king themselves. It's clear that no king could ever be the the king God's people needed other than God himself. And so centuries after the events of these books, we know that God came to earth as a man. Um, God came to earth as a man, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and he became that king. He died on the cross, facing the judgment of sin for anyone who believes in him, and he rose to life, ascending to the right hand of God the Father and offering eternal life with him for anyone who follows him as king. But it's not just the kings who we learn about in these books, and it's not just the kings who give us a small taste of the greater things to come later on in Jesus. Toward the the end of of 1 Kings and early on in 2 Kings, we witness the ministry of two prophets, in particular, Elijah and Elisha. Yes, that's right, Elijah and Elisha. Um, When the the kingdom of Israel split in two, one of the kings was Jeroboam and the other king was Rehoboam, and we've got two prophets, it's Elijah and Elisha. Just to keep us in our toes, can't make it too easy. Um, But the ministry of both Elijah and Elisha is incredibly significant. And today, we'll be looking at some key moments through 2 Kings, chapters 3 to 8, which takes place after Elijah has risen to heaven and passed the baton of his ministry onto Elisha. Okay? And in these chapters, it's interesting. The kings kind of take a back seat, and we get to focus on Elisha and his ministry. So it's a bit different. And as we do this, we'll see that just like these kings keep pointing us toward the promise of Jesus. The ministry of of Elisha foreshadows Jesus as well, but in very different ways. Elisha performs numerous miracles, right? He asks for twice the portion of what Elisha had before him, and we see around twice as many miracles recorded here. And these miracles which he does by the power of God show us so much about God's character that we see fulfilled in even greater ways later on through Jesus. And so that's what we're going to look at today, so you know where we're headed. There's lots going on in these chapters. We can't cover everything. And so I want us to focus particularly on what Elisha's miracles show us about God 
and how Jesus shows us those same things in even greater ways. Do you get where we're headed? There are two main areas of Elisha's miracles that, that are focused on in these chapters. All right? Firstly, miracles to do with a woman from a village in Israel called Shunem. All right? We don't know her name, but we know her as the Shunemite woman. All right? And secondly, miracles relating to Syria, who, who was an enemy nation of Israel at this time. Now, there are miracles involving other things as well, but these are two of the main recurring areas. So we're going to focus on Elisha with the Shunammite woman and Elisha with Syria. And that's what we're going to look at. So firstly, Elisha and the, and the Shunammite woman. We'll, um, we'll kick off with that. And, and the first miracle we see um, is a miracle of life, a miracle of conception. Um, now, just a little bit of context. We did have it read for us before by Lynn. But on Elisha's travels, this Shunammite woman offered hospitality to Elisha by not only letting him stay in her house, um, but her husband built a room on the top of their house for Elisha to stay in whenever he traveled by. And Elisha tells his servant Gehazi that he wants to reward her generous hospitality. So let's have a look. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 14. And he, Elisha, said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway. And he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. So Elisha realizes what's on this woman's heart and performs a miracle. Not only does she conceive, but even the simple fact that he can predict it even before she would have been pregnant is significant in itself, right? And you can maybe imagine how the woman felt when he told her this, can't you? I can kind of hear hear her voice as I kind of read it. She, She tells Elisha, please don't lie to me. Don't take advantage of my vulnerability. Don't exploit my grief with fanciful stories uh, that will only disappoint me. Right? She's so guarded at getting hopeful after having her hopes unfulfilled for so long. And yet, by the power of God, Elisha's promise is fulfilled and she has a son. And this isn't the first time we've seen something like this, obviously, all right? Um, many of us will be familiar with, with lots of accounts of God intervening for a child to be conceived by people who were previously unable to have children. One of the most famous examples is Abraham and Sarah in Genesis, who were elderly and had been unable to have children their whole lives. But God promised that not only would they have children, but in generations to come, they would have countless descendants like there are stars in the sky. But of course, these events were only a shadow of what was to come. The the kings, Elisha, uh, Abraham, the whole Old Testament, it's it's full of glimpses and tastes of things that would be fulfilled in even greater ways in Jesus. It all points to Jesus. Now keep your finger or your bookmark in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you're on a phone, it doesn't really matter. Um, And come with me to Luke chapter 1. We will go back to 2 Kings, so keep a a bookmark or something there if if you can. But Come with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Because when it comes to a miraculous birth, of course, Jesus wasn't just conceived in the face of infertility. He was born of a virgin. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. 
In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. See that significant connection? The house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him to the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his and of his kingdom there will be no end. So this is the Messiah, right? This is the promise to David. Let's get reading. And Mary said to angel, to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So while we see miracles of conception in the face of infertility throughout the Old Testament, including through Elisha's ministry, what happened with Jesus far surpassed what happened with Elisha. This was immaculate conception. And we see so many references to this being the fulfillment of the promise to David, which is what we're anticipating as we read through 1 and 2 Kings. And we see all of these kings not be the king that was promised to David. And at that level, conception with a virgin, we're also reminded of God not just as uh, someone who's generous and, and that sort of thing, but also as creator. Elisha is a prophet who did miracles by God's power and in God's name, but God himself is the source of all life. He created all things. So this miracle of conception is a shadow, in a sense, of God's power of creation, forming a world and giving life out of nothing, something even more significant. But let's get going because we've got plenty more of Elisha's ministry to look at. And the next miracle we see between Elisha and the Shunammite woman involves resurrection. This is years later when that child that she conceived had grown older. So resurrection. Have a look back at 2 Kings chapter 4, this time verse 18. 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 18. <clears throat> when the child had grown... He went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may go quickly to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor, nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. And then she saddled the donkey and said to her servant, urge the animal on, do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. She, so she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. Right? Then when she gets there, she tells Elisha what happens. And after sending his servant Gehazi, Elisha goes himself. So have a look at verse 32. Go down to verse 32 now. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. 
Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he was stretched, as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. What an incredible encounter, right? This isn't just healing, but resurrection. Not just overcoming illness, but overcoming death. Mind-blowing. And yet, most of us will know well that Jesus overcame death in an infinitely more significant way. Jesus died on the cross and rose himself from the grave three days later. You know some of the other major differences, though? Firstly, Jesus is still alive. That, that, that boy, while his resurrection was an incredible miracle of God through Elisha, still grew older and eventually died. Jesus rose alive, never to die again. Secondly, because Jesus took the judgment for our sin when he died on the cross, his victory over death achieved victory over death for everyone who repents of their sin and follows him. Through Elisha, God rose one boy from the dead for a few decades. But through Jesus, God redeemed for himself a whole nation of people for eternity. That's the gospel. It's incredible. And of course, Jesus did resurrection similar to the way Elisha did as well, where, where he brought someone back to life in the moment, although they would still grow older and eventually die. The most well-known of this is probably Lazarus. So let's go to John chapter 11. Again, keep two kings handy. We will go back there. But come with me to John chapter 11. Because in this passage, we see not only Jesus perform a miracle similar to Elisha's, but, but Jesus explains how this is only a shadow of the eternal resurrection in the last days that will be achieved through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. So John chapter 11, verse 17. John chapter 11, verse 17. <clears throat> now when Jesus came he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. So, Jesus rose Lazarus from the dead in that moment. He grew older, he died, but he's actually saying, I am the resurrection and the life. There's something bigger here that I'm promising. Those who follow me, though they die, they will live. And when they live, they will never die. Whoever believes in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the perfect king that we've been waiting for, though they will die, will live, and those who live will never die. Not die again a few decades later, 
never die. Eternal life through and only through Jesus. And the third miracle we see with Elisha and the Shunammite woman is one of restoration. Right? Specifically the restoration of her homeland and everything she had after she was forced to leave Israel, the land that God had promised to Moses and the Israelites when they left Egypt, and she had to flee to Philistine. So have a look now. Go back to 2 Kings, but this time chapter 8. 2 Kings chapter 8. <clears throat> 2 Kings chapter 8, I'm going to read from verse 1. Now Elisha had said to the woman whose son he had restored to life, Arise and depart with your household and sojourn wherever you can, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God. She went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. At, at, sorry, and at the end of the seven years, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, she went to appeal to the king for her house and her land. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me all the great things that Elisha has done. And while he was telling the king how Elisha had restored the dead to life, behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, here is the woman and here is her son whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed an official for her, saying, Restore all that was hers, together with all the produce of the fields from the day that she left the land until now. So after Elisha restored the woman's son to life, she had all her land and belongings restored to her as well after losing it all in the famine. And Elisha's at the center of this, right? It was because of Elisha's warning that she was prepared and able to, to flee before the famine hit. And it was because of Elisha's miracle with her son that the king of Israel was persuaded to restore her land to her. Um, you can just, by the way, a quick aside, uh, you can see what I mean about the kings taking a back seat in these chapters, can't you? All right, the, the king isn't even named in these passages. All right? His name's Jehoram, by the way. Um, uh, but the point is that the woman's safety during the famine and the restoration of her homeland was, humanly speaking, because of Elisha. And did you, did you notice where she fled as well? It wasn't to another city or another region of Israel. It was to another nation. And not just to any foreign nation, but Philistine, a well-known and long-established enemy of Israel. So this woman lived in Shunem, a village in Israel, so obviously part of the land that God promised to the Israelites when Moses led them out of Egypt. And when she left everything behind, then she left everything behind living in enemy territory. But through Elisha, God restored her home and all her belongings to her. That land that he had originally promised to his people. Now, we're only talking about restoration for one household, right? But like all of Elisha's ministry, it still reminds us of God's character and the kind of God that he is. This is the same God who created the whole universe and said it was good, who created a garden and people to live in it and gave humankind the responsibility to look after the creation God had made for them and said it was all good. But because of their sin, they had to leave. They fled, never able to return. That is never until God establishes a new creation. The new creation, the ultimate promised land, the, the, the thing that Moses 
where Moses led them in the promised land was just a shadow of. The ultimate promised land with Jesus Christ, the lion and the lamb on the throne forever, and us as his people, the new Jerusalem, his bride. Let's go to Revelation 21 to see John the Apostle's vision of Jesus establishing the new creation and having that promised land restored for his people. Revelation 21, this is back of your Bibles. Revelation 21, I'm going to read from verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So God established one woman's home through Elisha, but he established an entire new heaven and earth for all of his people through Jesus, an eternal home. Now, we're going to shift gears a little as we move our focus from the Shunammite woman to the nation of Syria, which is often in conflict with Israel, right? And when you consider the war and hostility between Syria and Israel, the first miracle we'll look at involving Syria might surprise you because it's a healing Healing. Have a look. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. We're looking at Elisha and Syria now. And we see this miracle of healing. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria? He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And then Naaman goes to the king of Israel, right, Jehoram, with the letter from the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. And Jehoram freaks out and says, how am I supposed to heal this man? All right? And he thinks it's some kind of trap from the king of Syria, like the, this king is asking me to do something that I can't do, and so when I don't do it, it I'm going to get in trouble. This is going to blow up. This is going to be bad. And how ironic that this, there are Syrians recognizing the power of the God of Israel when the king of Israel doesn't even recognize that power, Right? But come with me to verse 8 now. 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he went to the king saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. 
Are not Abana and Farpa, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near him and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored, like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, there's a a few interesting things to pick up on here, right? First of all, like I said, how remarkable it is how renowned Yahweh, the God of Israel, is among other nations, all right? That even their enemy, the Syrians, were reaching out to them because they believed that Elisha, known as the man of God, could do by, by Yahweh what they couldn't. He could heal Naaman's leprosy. There was reputation for that in other nations. The second thing that we can pick out, which is interesting, is almost the inverse of that. That while the king of Syria was writing a letter to his enemy, the king of Israel, reaching out in trust of the power of the God of Israel for a miracle, the king of Israel himself was tearing his clothes apart in anguish, thinking that there was no hope to be able to heal Naaman, and panicking, thinking this was some sort of a trap. The king of Israel had less confidence in the God of Israel than the king of Syria had in that way. And the the third interesting thing is something we didn't actually read for the sake of time, but it happens immediately after, and I'll give you a quick summary. Naaman offers a gift to Elisha in return for the healing, and Elisha declines. But Elisha's servant, Gehazi, is greedy, and he runs after Naaman asking for money and clothes. And because of this, Elisha tells Gehazi that Naaman's leprosy will now cling to him. And so along with God working through Elisha for healing, we also see actually God working through Elisha for judgment. And this further reveals God's character to us. We've seen how God is a God who is a creator and gives life. He's a God who resurrects and has power over death. He's a God of restoration who promises a kingdom for his Israel for his people to dwell for eternity. He's a God who heals the sick. And he's a God of judgment who despises sin. So I hope you're following and, and along and seeing how Elisha's ministry paints us such a vivid picture of God and who he is. And how Jesus, the Son of God, paints it even more vividly. As the Word became flesh and God was revealed to us in a single man, the Christ. And when it comes to healing... Of course, there are countless examples, right, where we see Jesus perform miracles similar to what we've seen here with Elisha. I'll throw some up on the screen. So have a look. Um, This is from John chapter 9. Similar to how Elisha asked Naaman to wash in the Jordan, Jesus asked a blind man to wash in order to be healed as well. Let's have a look. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. So he was healed in a similar way there, uh, where he went to wash. But this was blindness from birth, an incredible miracle. And unlike Elisha, Jesus explains this because he himself 
is the light of the world. And then we see that Jesus heals lepers as well. So have a look um, in Matthew 8. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is Jesus. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So this time, Jesus didn't ask the man to wash. He simply touches the leper, and the leper is healed instantly. And even more drastic healing of leprosy than what we saw with Elisha. And so in this first encounter we've looked at between Elisha and Syria, we see God's character revealed in a miracle of healing, as well as a miracle of judgment. And we see those things even more so in Jesus. And the second encounter we'll look at between Elisha and Syria, again, might feel a bit surprising, It shows us God's character in an act of mercy. Something of mercy. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, Now we won't read all of this because Lynn read it out for us before as one of our Bible readings, but a quick recap if you've forgotten. So 2 Kings chapter 6. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, is warring against Israel, which just as an aside feels so crazy after he's like written a letter to the king of Israel asking, hey, can you do me a favor? Can you... Can your prophet and your God please heal the commander of my army? I need him in like tip-top shape for when I like to declare war on you guys. Thanks in advance. Um, But anyway, as King Hadad makes plans to attack Israel, God reveals those plans to Elisha who passes it all on to Jehoram, the king of Israel. So Israel is always one step ahead of Syria. And when Ben-Hadad's servants tell him that it's Elisha who's doing this, He brings an army to Israel and surrounds the city where Elisha is by night to capture Elisha, the same man who healed the commander of his army. Except, after Ben-Hadad surrounds the city where Elisha is, Elisha prays to God and asks the army to be struck down with blindness, and God does exactly that. But it's the next part that I want us to focus on as we think about the, the character of Elisha and God. Elisha leads the blind army to Samaria, and then read what happens next. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 20. He leads the blind army to Samaria. And then in verse 20, As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. So although Elisha asked God to strike his enemy with blindness, he also asked God to open their eyes again, And when the king of Israel was ready to wipe out the Syrian army, Elisha instructed him not to, even though they could, and instead feed them food and water and send them off in peace. This is mercy. And it's not Elisha's power. We see Elisha ask God for these things each time. And so these miracles are showing us the merciful nature of God. These were enemies of God's people. And although he made them blind, He opened their eyes to see, and he spared their lives. And of course, we see Jesus do this with an enemy of his people in an even more renowned moment. Can you guess the moment I'm thinking of? We'll see. 
Jesus does this with Saul, doesn't he? The enemy and persecutor of Christians when he was on the road to Damascus, a moment I'm sure many of us are familiar with. Uh, Keep your uh, finger or bookmark in 2 Kings and come with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And we'll see what happens with Saul um, on the road to Damascus and what Jesus does here. So this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus, if you're not familiar. Um, So the Christian movement has been gaining traction, all that sort of stuff, um, and Saul has been persecuting Christians. Um, So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he may regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So Jesus made Saul blind, then opened his eyes. Saul, who was one of the most infamous opponents to, to followers of Jesus at that time, right? a fierce enemy persecuting Christians and having them imprisoned and put to death. That Saul. Jesus opened his eyes and called him to turn and follow him like the people he had been persecuting. And of course, he became Paul the Apostle, possibly the most influential Christian in history. God's mercy and God's grace. It's, it's, um, it's fitting that the song Amazing Grace says, I once was blind, but now I see. Because in that spiritual blindness to God, in that hopeless depravity of our sin, God showed us mercy. He opened our eyes by his Holy Spirit to see and know him. Amazing grace. So Elisha's miracles, they weren't simply in blessing like an individual here and there, or even simply in protecting Israel as a nation for the sake of God's relationship with Israel, Elisha's ministry showed God's character in miracles of mercy even to foreign nations, to enemy nations. 
God is a merciful God. And how much more did we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ? The mercy and grace that we have in him. And the third encounter we'll look at featuring Elisha in Syria, and the last thing we'll look at today, is a miracle of provision. Um, one of provision. So even after Elisha's healing of Naaman, and even after Elisha opening the eyes of the Syrian army and sparing their lives, King Hadad of Syria comes back and attacks Israel again. Right? In spite of God's mercy and grace, the Syrians ignore it and come back again, and this time they besiege Samaria okay, so that everyone is trapped. Nothing and nobody gets in or out. Have a look 2 Kings chapter 6 and go to verse 24. 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 24. <clears throat> Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung was for five shekels of silver. This was horrific, right? Israel was under siege. No one could get in or out. They were running out of food and resources to the point where things that they would normally throw away, like a donkey's head or literally bird poo, were being sold for astronomical amounts of money, right? Um, people often talk about the current cost of living crisis experience, you know, not just in Australia, but around much of the world at the moment. The prices of petrol, electricity, groceries, rent, interest rates, um, it's been rising fast and many people are feeling it and it's, it's hard. But what the Israelites were experiencing was truly beyond our understanding. People's sin and selfishness was well and truly on display as food and resources ran out. In the following verses, you can read about mothers eating their own children. It really was a dark and sickening period in Israel's history. But it's what happens next that I want us to focus on. So go to 2 Kings chapter 7, and I'm going to read from verse 1. 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 1. But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow, about this time, a seer of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. I don't think I can fully appreciate what it would have been like right, to be under a siege that has been continuing relentlessly for so long with people selling rubbish for outrageous prices, people starving, dying, eating each other, and then have someone say, yeah, I reckon yeah, around this time tomorrow we'll have such abundance of food that glorious things will be selling for super cheap. What? That's, that sounds ridiculous. Even if the Syrians decided to pull a pin on this siege and head home suddenly, I mean, the people in Samaria still have nothing to eat or drink. So how can a turnaround happen like that? It would be unfathomable. And yet, that's exactly what happens. Have a look down at verse 3. So 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there, 
For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sounds of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the king of kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And go down to verse 16. Verse 16. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Syrians. So a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and two seers of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. A day later, a seer of fine flour was sold for a shekel, and seers of barley to see as for a shekel, just as Elisha had said. And in verse, both verse 1 and verse 16, it actually clarifies that was the word of the Lord. So it happened just as God said. The Syrians left because they heard a sound, which sounds crazy enough, but they didn't just leave, they fled in such a hurry, they didn't even take anything with them. This army had besieged an entire city, and God takes care of them with a sound. We see God's character as a God who provides for his people here, revealed to us through Elisha's ministry here and and the word that God spoke through Elisha. We also see judgment again, judgment on Israel for their unfaithfulness to God as they're besieged, and we see salvation, divine intervention reaching in and saving Samaria. But of course, God as our provider is affirmed all through Scripture, right? This, This miraculous provision of a city going from poverty to abundance overnight reveals something about God's character that's revealed to us all through the Bible. You know, Paul tells the Corinthians that there's nothing they have that they haven't received from God. And yet, we know that so many people, whether Christian or not, live in poverty. Just like many people in Samaria died during that siege because they didn't have enough food or water to live on, that is tragically the case for many today. So what do we make of that? We heard stories just last week from Compassion about people in the world who are living in poverty. Well, again, let's look at how Jesus reveals God as our provider in an even bigger way, and then we'll finish up. So turn to Matthew chapter 6, and this is the last passage we're going to read today. So Matthew chapter 6, the last thing we'll read, and go to verse 25. And we'll see how Jesus reveals God as our provider in an even bigger way. Um, All right. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more, more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of one field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven... Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So Jesus said not to worry. The birds and the flowers have what they need. 
And this shows us something about God's character, that he looks after those he loves, and his people are far more precious to him than flowers and birds. And yet, there's still no promise here of abundance here in this life. Okay? Even in the same breath, Jesus actually says that those flowers are arrayed with more beauty than even the king was, King Solomon, in all his glory. So obviously Jesus' point isn't to say that therefore, because we're more precious, we'll have more material things here all the time, that uh, we'll always have food and clothing because birds have food and flowers are dressed beautifully. Although it is worth remembering that even though there is no promise of abundant food and clothing and material things in this life, that God still does provide those things to many. And in the case of all of us here, we all have lots to be thankful for God, uh, to God for in what he has provided for us. But poverty is real, both locally and globally. We know that, even though most of us are relatively insulated from it. But Jesus also says in the same moment that life is, itself is more important than food and clothes. God's character is one who provides, and while he provides many material things for us, that's not what his promises are about. What he's promised to provide us with is life. We can trust that no matter what things are like for us in this life, that we are more precious to God than birds or flowers, so we know that ultimately God will provide something far greater for us than what the birds and flowers have in this world. And what we do see is eternal life in a new creation that is good, like the Garden of Eden was before the fall, where everything is plentiful for all. So, in just some of Elisha's ministry and miracles, we haven't covered everything. We can clearly see God's character revealed to us in the things he does through Elisha, known as the man of God. We see aspects of God's power and character foreshadowed in ways like conception and then life-giving and creation. Elisha didn't create, but God is creator and the source of life, and he made everything through and for Jesus. We see it in resurrection, restoration, healing, mercy, provision. And of course, we see all of those things again, but in far greater ways, fulfilled in Jesus Christ, God's promised king who is alive today and will reign forever. I'm going to pray. Why don't you pray with me? Dear God, we thank you and praise you for your creation, your promise of resurrection, restoration, that you are a God who loves, who heals, who is merciful and who provides. We thank you for the ministry of Elisha who have revealed this to the people of his time and to us as readers of your word. Help us to not be spiritually blind to what you've revealed to us through Elisha, as many people around him were. And thank you most of all for the way you revealed all of these things to us ultimately in Jesus Christ, your promised King. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.org.au.